You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. All right, you're intrigued now, aren't you? What is this book about? Good to see everybody. Uh, My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. Hey, if it's your first time with us this morning, thanks so much for joining us. We're so happy that you would come and Worship with us. If you're joining us digitally, thank you so much for joining us online. And if it is your very first time with us here in person, we'd love to offer you a free gift today, a tumbler or a sippy cup or a water bottle. And that is our gift to you out in the foyer. You can go grab that after the service if it's your first time with us. Uh, If you would like prayer for something or want more information about our church or don't have a name tag yet and would like any of those, you can fill out that slip in the seat back in front of you, uh, put it in the offering slot which is right over there, and uh, we will be following up with you shortly. Just a quick reminder to all you voting members, and you know who you are. We only have one meeting a year, people, okay? Only one, and it's after second service, so just remember that, one meeting. So we'd love to see all of you voting members there. Well, very excited today to jump into a very peculiar and powerful book, and that's the Old Testament book of Esther, so I'm going to pray. Then we'll jump in. God, what uh, the enemy intends for evil, you intend for good. You do all things well. And Lord, what confidence we have that you work and we can see it, and then sometimes we don't see it, and yet you are still working. And God, even when it appears you are absent, you are present. And Lord, as we look at the story of Esther, I pray you would renew our confidence in your providence. Jesus, I ask it for your sake. Amen. So years ago, I was reading an interview with Richard Dawkins, and if you've heard that name, uh, it's probably because he is and still is the world's most famous atheist. And, And the interview asked Dawkins, he said, you know, Richard, if you died and arrived at the gates of heaven, what would you say to God to justify your lifelong atheism? And I appreciated his honesty. Dawkins said in response, God, not enough evidence. Not enough evidence, God. And it strikes me that many believers in God, many Christians, have experienced a similar feeling. Even the most sincere believer has been troubled by God's absence, by his hiddenness, by the lack of evidence that God is at work. Have you ever been troubled by that? Have you ever asked, okay, God, where are you? What are you up to? Because I don't see it. Where are you in this situation? You ever cried out, God, where are you? That's actually a common refrain in Scripture, and and it's interesting because the people who cry out, God, where are you? It's not the, the skeptics or the wicked, it's actually the righteous who are troubled by God's seeming indifference to their plight. There will be times in all of our lives as believers when the world seems to be spinning out of control, and when the world is spinning out of control, we start to spiral. 
And when we spiral, we look for God's evidence. And so maybe we look for it in the details of life or coincidences and go, maybe God's working here or, or there. And, and yet sometimes it seems the harder we look, the more absent he is and, and the more confused we are. Sometimes when the world is out of control, we look to human leaders and go, man, okay, that guy, that girl, that man, that woman, that's who God is working through. And yet you look more closely at those people and you think, wow, they really have clay feet. And the heroes who are supposed to lead us don't seem that heroic at all. What happens when God seems absent? What, what are we supposed to do with that feeling? Have you ever felt that way? If you have, and if you haven't, you will as a believer, then the book of Esther is for you. Today we begin our series on the Old Testament book of Esther which is one of the most surprising, most hilarious, most confusing stories in the entire Bible. It's an amazing story. And you ask, Jeff, why would you say that? Well, can I just tell you the story? Because it's such a good story. There's really no better way to start Esther than to just tell you the story. Here's the story, okay? Let's go back 2,500 years. It's the 5th century BC. The setting is Susa, which is the capital city of the Persian Empire. A large number of Jews had migrated to this city. And King Ahasuerus, the Greek name is Xerxes, he rules over the known world. He's at the height of his power. And as he's at the height of his power, he decides to flex. And so he throws a banquet, a very long banquet, a very, very long banquet. And at the height of the banquet, when everyone is absolutely hammered, he invites his wife, Vashti, to come out and flaunt herself before the inebriated guests. She's offended. She says no. The king is incensed. He can't believe that his wife would refuse her, so the queen is deposed. No more queen. Once his anger subsides and the alcohol wears off, he realizes, oh, I actually need a queen. That's a problem. So this king holds a contest to replace Vashti. And, and basically, it's a beauty pageant. Empire-wide looks high and low for the, the most beautiful woman, and a Jewish man named Mordecai hears of the contest and tells his niece, who's also his foster daughter, Esther, to enter the competition. So Esther goes through this year-long process of preparation and beautification, and finally she appears before the king, and uh, Esther is fire, as the kids would say today. And she has one night to make an impression on the king, and evidently, she did. She made quite the impression. The text doesn't go into details. But amazingly, Esther, the Jewish orphan, becomes queen. She wins the pageant, and all of a sudden, this marginalized orphan is at the seat of power over the known world. Around the same time, Mordecai hears of a plot to assassinate the king. He relays the information to the king. The plot is foiled, and Mordecai's good deed is recorded in the official Persian record books. So everything's going great, right? Which is why at this point the story has to go bad. And it does. This is when the conflict occurs. We learn of one of these king's officials. His name is Haman. He's pig-headed. He's awful. He's the bad guy. He is being presented in honor. Everyone in the empire honors him except for one person, Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow. We'll find out why later. Incensed by Mordecai's slight, Haman vows revenge. And Haman is so mad that he doesn't just want to kill Mordecai, but he hatches a plan to kill every Jew throughout the empire. Why would he do that? We'll find out later. So, Haman goes to the king and says, King, 
suppose there were this insubordinate, awful people in the land that were a threat to your empire. You'd want them exterminated, right? And the king goes, oh, yeah. And he goes, okay. And the king says, sure, carry out that order. I, I need to get to lunch. And so Haman does. And an order is issued, an edict, that all the Jews in the land will be exterminated. And so Haman casts lots, which were like die. He rolls them to determine what day that all the Jews will be executed on, and the genocide will take place on the 13th day of the 12th month. When Mordecai learns of this decree, he is devastated, and he implores Esther to wield her influence with the king to expose her Jewish identity, which he hadn't done up to this point, and implore the king to reverse the edict and save all the Jews. Esther wants no part of it. She's very reluctant because apparently the king has lost interest in Esther. In fact, it seems he's even forgotten that she exists. And so Mordecai keeps pressuring Esther, of Esther eventually taking her life into her hands, appears unsummoned before the king, which you never did, and whew, wouldn't you know it, the king is delighted to see Esther. And the king, because he's such an agreeable fellow, says, Esther, what do you want? I'll give you anything, up to half my kingdom. But Esther doesn't tell him. She says, I need to throw you a banquet. And so she throws a banquet for the king and for Haman. And then at that banquet, they're ready for their quest. And she says, nope, I've got to throw you another banquet. And on that night, I will tell you. Why would she do that? We'll find out later. <laughs> I want to keep you coming back, okay? So Haman leaves the banquet feeling incredibly self-important. After all, who else gets a banquet, a private banquet with just the king and the queen? He's walking out all high and mighty, and then he sees Mordecai, and once again, he's filled with rage. He's so mad that he devises another plot, and he tells his family of this plan. He's going to erect a huge pole in the middle of the city and hang Mordecai on it. Shame him beyond all shame. That same night, the king is restless. He can't sleep. So he orders a servant to come and read the royal records, some helpful bedtime reading. The servant just so happens to open up to the record of Mordecai. And the king remembers, oh yeah, Mordecai, he foiled that assassination plot against me. I never thanked the guy. I should probably do something for him. So the king decides to rectify that oversight. Just then, Haman so happens to arrive in the king's court, ready to present this whole idea of hanging Mordecai. And so the king says, Haman, get in here. He says, Haman, hey, man, um, suppose I wanted to honor someone in the kingdom. I mean, like, really honor them. What would you say I should do? And Haman says, yes. He's talking about this guy. And so Haman goes on and on with this lavish idea of all that the king should do to honor someone. And he says, Haman, thank you. You're my idea guy. Always count on you, buddy. Hey, go do all of that for Mordecai. So Haman is forced to lead his mortal enemy through the streets in a lavish display of honor, humiliated. Haman doubles down on his plan to exterminate the Jews, but his family says, I think it's a bad idea. <laughs> I, I think you're, you're on the wrong team here, Haman. Just then, Haman is summoned to the queen's banquet. There, Esther finally makes her plea to the king. She discloses that she is a Jew. She asks him to rescind the royal order to exterminate the Jewish people. Finally, it, two and two get together for the king. goes, oh yeah, I guess I did decree to exterminate a people. Oh no, they're Jews. I should do something about that. Who would order such a thing? And Esther's like, Haman, remember? So he leaves the room trying to get his thoughts together about what to do next. 
Haman is mortified. He throws himself on Esther, drapes himself over her, begs for mercy, and just the kin, then the king so happens to walk back in, sees Haman draped all over his wife, assumes she's being assaulted, and has Haman hanged on the giant pole that was meant for Mordecai. But there's still a problem. Not all the problems have been solved because it turns out that according to Persian law, a decree cannot be rescinded. So you still have this command for genocide, and so the king issues a counter-command and says, okay, all the Jews can defend themselves on that day. And so on the 13th day of the 12th month, when the Jews were to be destroyed, what happens? The reverse. And the Jews destroy all of their enemies. Esther says, hey, can we get another day? to do this? And the king says, yeah, whatever. And so the Jews get another day and destroy all of Haman's household. All of their enemies are exterminated. The Jews are delivered. And then on the 14th and 15th days of that month, they hold a great celebration called Purim, named after the lots that Haman cast against them. And to this day, Jews all around the world celebrate Purim because somewhat absurdly, and inexplicably, the Jewish people were delivered. Now, that's a good story, isn't it? That's a great story. It's a masterpiece. You're going to see that as we get into it. Why is that story in the Bible? It's a weird story. Why is, is that story in Scripture? Well, the most obvious answer is that it explains to the people of Israel the origin of Purim. We have ancient records of Jews celebrating this festival of God's deliverance, and it makes sense that Jews would want to know, well, why do we celebrate this every year? Well, let's tell the story. Let's have it read each year, and so we can remember it. And, and this is a big deal. I mean, think about it. Jews from the time of Purim felt obligated to celebrate this festival. But the Jews already had festivals. I mean, in the Old Testament law, God lays out the yearly festivals the Jews were celebrating. Adding a yearly festival is a big deal. So it warranted a book. And the Jewish response to this book throughout history has been overwhelmingly positive. Jews love Esther. It's one of the most beloved books for Jews. The rabbis wrote more commentaries on Esther than just about any other Old Testament book. In fact, Maimonides, the, the great Jewish philosopher of the Middle Ages, he said that in eternity... All the books of the Old Testament will dissolve and be no more except for the law, the first five books of the Bible, and Esther. You guessed it. They loved Esther. And, and you can understand why, because this story has been all too familiar to the Jewish people. Time and again, they've been on the brink of extermination, and inexplicably, God has brought them out. So Esther is a great reminder to the Jews of how God can turn the tables on their oppressors. That's Judaism. What do Christians think about the book? Jews have loved it, and to be honest, throughout church history, Christians have kind of gone, eh. They haven't loved it. In fact, no Christian, as far as we can tell, wrote a commentary on Esther for the first nine centuries of the church. They didn't know what to do with it. Some Christians really didn't like it. In fact, Martin Luther, the Reformers said, quote, I wish it didn't exist. Luther had that strong an opinion about everything, by the way. So. But that attitude has persisted through the centuries. In fact, a 20th century scholar said this, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing slightly. He said, if a Christian minister is faithful, he will not preach from Esther. 
My bad, guys. Sorry. I... <laughs> so there's been either a rejection of Esther or, or something of an embarrassment. Why? Well, well one, the obvious reason is just anti-Semitism. There's been prejudice against Jews, and this is a very seemingly nationalistic book. You could read this book, and at face value, the message is, don't mess with the Jews. And so, whereas the Jews have loved it, other people have said, this is just Jewish nationalistic pride. Why would we, why would we read that book? And sadly, that, that's been a characteristic mark of Christians throughout the ages, is anti-Semitism, and that's one reason Christians have struggled with it. However, even if you're not an anti-Semite, there are reasons to struggle with this book. There are reasons it's hard for us to grasp. Here are the two. First, the heroes just don't seem that heroic. We read this story, and, and let's be honest, there's some questionable behavior here, isn't there? I mean, Esther and Mordecai are the heroes, and in one sense they are, but if that's the case, what are we to make of, of their decisions? I mean, is Esther right to hide her Jewishness? Was Mordecai right to pressure his foster daughter into entering a ridiculous beauty pageant? And Jews were prohibited from intermarrying with idol worshipers, and the king sure doesn't seem like a faithful Jew. So was it okay for Esther to marry him, and if the marriage thing failed, she would have been a concubine, and was she just okay with that decision? And Mordecai's refusal to bow before Haman, was that a godly defiant act, or was that a refusal to honor authority, even if it was ungodly? Is that defiance justified? Or is Mordecai just motivated by pride or ego? And are Esther and Mordecai motivated by vengeance in their actions? And are they failing to leave vengeance to God? See, there are some problems here. And, and we shouldn't be quick to resolve them. We should sit in them and try to think through this tension. Because when we encounter ethical dilemmas like this, it bothers us. Because let's be honest, when we read biblical stories, do you know what we want? Do you know what I want? I want good guys. I want bad guys. And I want it to be clear. And I think that's just instinctual for us. So, so several weeks ago, Kishel and I, we might have, this might have been a parenting fail, okay? Full disclosure. Uh, we took Addie and Jake, our older kids, to see West Side Story. And uh, it's amazing. It was a masterful remake of the musical. And, and if you know anything about West Side Story and how it ends... I don't need to say anything else. It's not a pick-me-up movie. And so we're there watching, and the movie ends, and, and, and I look over at Cashel, and she's just in stunned silence, like, wow, that was a good movie. And then I look over at Addie, and Addie's like, wow, that was amazing. And then I look over at Jake, and he's like this. And he said, he shouted, what the heck in the movie theater? And, and as we're walking out, he says, Dad, listen, I like Marvel movies, okay? There's a good guy, there's a bunch of bad guys, and the good guy kills all the bad guys, and everything's fixed. But there were no good guys in this movie, and no bad guys. They were all just sort of, uh, and the ending was, uh, and he's just, so what was the point? What was the point? That's a good question, isn't it? What was the point? We want that kind of story. And in this story, the Jews prevail, but are they that good? 
Did the author think that all of their decisions were good? And if that's the case, uh, how do we reconcile that? So the moral ambiguity of the book is one problem. And so maybe we resolve that by saying, well, maybe there are no heroes in the story. Maybe, maybe God's the hero in the story, right? Maybe God is, the, and that's a good impulse, right? Maybe you think, you know, I've heard Jeff and John say that before. God's the real hero of the Bible. And so maybe God's the hero of Esther. Great. Guess who doesn't show up in the book of Esther? God. And that's the most troubling thing of all. God never acts in the book of Esther. The narrator never mentions God. None of the characters mention God. It's the only book in the Bible where God is never mentioned. That's weird, isn't it? That's really weird. The characters never mention God, and in a sense, you can read this as a completely secular book. Now, do you understand why Christians struggle with this? What do we do with a book like this? Maybe you're asking at this point, Jeff, why are we studying this book? I'm glad you asked. One of the beautiful things about God's Word, one of the doctrines we hold to as Christians, is the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture means this, that in the book, in this book, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. The sufficiency of Scripture means that God, in His Word, addresses every different kind of situation we will find ourselves in as the people of God and what we should think. And that's why Esther is beautiful, because there will be times in the Christian life where God seems to just not be there. And our heroes don't seem that heroic, and circumstances seem completely against us, and the most natural thing to do is to see, think that God is indifferent, or inept, or just absent, and that's exactly the situation that Esther speaks to. So, three things that Esther teaches us that we're going to go back to again and again. We are studying Esther for three reasons. Because it builds our confidence in God's secret providence. Because it teaches us to take God seriously and ourselves less so. And because it offers hope to compromised believers. Three reasons. First, Esther helps us become confident in God's secret providence. We want big, brash, bold providence, right? We want God's providence like in the Exodus. Plagues, miracles, yeah, God is flexing. He's going to deliver us. And Esther is just as powerful a deliverance, and yet God is completely behind the scenes. That's why it's surprising. Here's what I think the author is doing. Let's do a little thought experiment here, okay? Ready for this thought experiment? I want to see how many of you can succeed at this. Ready? Don't think about chocolate. What are you thinking about? You can't stop thinking about chocolate, right? By, by suggesting the opposite, your mind goes over here, right? That is what the author does in the book of Esther. It's so deliberate. There are so many times when the author could have mentioned God, but deliberately doesn't. Don't think about God now. Now, don't focus on what God's doing here. What is he doing? He's forcing us as readers to think, okay, where is God in this, right? And so it forces us to start looking for God. 
because no one's mentioning him. So where is he in the story? Here's what's amazing about the book of Esther. When you look up close like this and look for God's work, you can't see it. But you know what you do? If you take a step back and look at the big picture, you go, this is all about God's work. You just have to see the forest for the trees. Esther is brilliantly structured. The entire book of Esther is a reversal. The entire thing is about God reversing a curse. And God reverses everything in the book and does it in the most improbable way imaginable. That's the theme right there. Esther 9.1, they say it. The reverse occurred. That sums it up. The reverse just keeps occurring in the book of Esther. And if you don't look, believe me, look at this really cool chart that took me too long to make right here, okay? <laughs> this is from Levinson's commentary on Esther. But what you see in this book is that everything gets turned on its head by the end of the book. So you have the greatness of the king, you have these Persian feasts, you have Esther terrified to identify as a Jew, so she identifies as a, a Gentile. You have Haman getting honored, you have him giving this anti-Jewish edict. You have Mordecai pleading with Esther, Esther going to this first banquet, and then you have a hinge. And the hinge happens when? When the king is on his bed, turning, can't sleep, and he just so happens to remember who? Mordecai. Because the servant just so happens to read in the official record book this little line about what Mordecai did. And then what happens in the story? Everything gets reversed. And so the second banquet, the king is favorable, and Esther pleads with the king now, who issues a pro-Jewish edict, and elevation of Mordecai happens. And the Gentiles are now so afraid of the Jews that they want to identify as Jews. And so the Jews hold two feasts, just like the Persians had at the beginning. And now, not only is the king great, but who's great? Mordecai as well. The Jews have been exalted. Do you think that was intentional? Yes. It was intentional. What is the author saying? That God works brilliantly, inexplicably to reverse everything wrong with his people. And he does so in a way that we can't even see it until we take a step back. That's the point of Esther. Here's what it means for you in your life. You can relax. You can relax. God knows what he's doing even when it seems like we have no idea, if we take a step back, we can go, wait a minute, God, those coincidences in my life, they're, they're not really coincidences at all, are they? You ever had a just-so-happened moment in life? Oh, it just so happened like that. And you look back, and you're like, ah, oh, that didn't just so happen. Right? I mean, the way I met Cashel, we, we just so happened to live next to each other in the dorms, and then we just so happened to move into the same apartment complex. And our apartments just so happened to be adjacent to each other. And then we just so happened to move in on the same day. And our parents just so happened to be helping us. And then our parents just so happened to have a great conversation about us, even though we never really talked to each other, which was weird. And then I just so happened to run into Cashel's dad, Terry, who just so happened to say to Cashel, hey, I just met your future husband. <laughs> Seriously. Now, Cashel claims he said that all the time. I don't believe it. All of that happened before we were ever interested in each other at all. It just so happened. 
You can relax. God knows what he's doing. Even when you have no idea what he's doing, oh no, he's doing brilliant things, and they just so happen. It'll seem like a coincidence. And you can rest that God knows how to take care of you. You know, we always want to ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? The question I'm amazed by is why do stupid people get delivered from their stupidity so often? <laughs> why does this idiot get delivered so often from his idiocy? I was on the freeway a few days ago taking our, our little guy Omari to, to preschool, and we're on the 238 there, and we take it every day, and it was backed up horribly. I'm annoyed, and finally I figure out why. There's an accident up ahead. And I go, and there's that interchange where the 238 breaks off into 880 North and 880 South right there. And, and, and it was one of the worst accidents I've ever seen. And, and there was a little sedan sandwiched between an 18-wheeler and a huge truck. And I thought, oh, my gosh. And I could tell how it happened that the person had tried to get over too late. And the traffic had stopped in front of them. And might have been the end of their life. And you know who tries to make that move? More days than not? This idiot. And so the really amazing thing, if you look at your life, is how often God is looking out for you and you have no idea. We just can't know all the eventualities, all the risks, everything else. And so we need a God big enough to figure it out for us. And he does, because he loves us. God is working things out even when we don't see it. Second, this book will help you to take God very seriously and people less seriously, <laughs> ourselves less seriously. One of the great things about Esther is how funny it is. It's a funny book. It is satire. You will see it. And it's sarcastic, and that makes me happy because I'm sarcastic, and now I have a biblical reason to be sarcastic. <laughs> That's my love language. If I make fun of you, I love you, right? <laughs> Esther is satire. And, and, and the most satirical character in the entire thing is the king. Is the king. You have this king. Here's the setting. You have Ahasuerus. He reigns from India to Ethiopia. That's a flex right there, right? I am the most powerful person on earth. What we know about, I have conquered. And the most forgetful, stupid, weak character in the entire book is who? The king. In fact, here's the greatest irony. The king, if you look closely, doesn't make a single decision in the entire book. Every decision is made for him. And, and Esther, who is the most marginalized, ends up making all the decisions by the end of the book. And that's who God uses. What, what is the author trying to tell us? That all the big saber-rattling, chest-thumping empires of the world that look so scary, they have no idea what they're doing. That, that the things we fear when you pull back the veil, these people are just as fearful and out of control and cowardly as the rest of us. And that God is always working. You know what that means? It means this, that the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. That when the world looks the scariest and the most intimidating, God says if you pulled back the canopy, you wouldn't be that scared. 
there are bigger forces at work and I am working too. So that's the second reason. Final one and then we're done. Esther offers hope to us if we feel like compromised believers. Right, you want to be used by God, I want to be used by God. And I think the fear that a lot of us wrestle with is I'm just not qualified to be used. That if you looked at my life, I'm not the kind of person God could use now. And until I really clean up my act, God is not going to work through me. What's amazing about the book of Esther is how God uses assimilated, even compromised people to accomplish his work. Think about this. The Jews went into exile in Babylon, right? And that was God's judgment against the Jews. And they were reigned over by the Babylonians, and then the Persians came into power, and God said, God said, that after 70 years, I will deliver you from exile and you can go home. And that's exactly what happened. The Persian Empire takes over. Cyrus the Great comes into power. He issues a decree and says, Jews, you can go home. And some Jews do, right? But a lot don't. In fact, some Jews pack up their bags from Babylon, where they're living, and they don't go back to Israel. You know where they go? They go to Susa, the capital of Persia. They go further away from their homeland. Do you know why? Because they can make a lot of money. Because <laughs> they can be successful there. And they just set up shop in a new place and assimilate largely into the culture. And what you see in Esther is a people who seem very different than the other exilic Israelites. Think about Daniel, right? Daniel is wholehearted in his devotion to God. Daniel is burdened about the exile. He prays that God would deliver the people from Israel. Nehemiah is just torn up that the city of Jerusalem is in ruins. Decades have passed. And God's people in Susa, there's no mention of the land here. There's no mention of going back. In fact, they seem pretty comfortable in exile. Do, do you know what Esther, the name, means? It's Ishtar, the Babylonian goddess. Mordecai is Marduk, the Babylonian god. They've taken on names that would be very popular, comfortable, just fitting right in. This is a people who, who seem far from God. That's the implication. And yet, God intervenes on their behalf. Because God is faithful even when we are faithless. In Deuteronomy 31 and 32, God says, that when his people are in exile, and he says this multiple times, do you know what he will do? He will hide his face from his people. Hide his face. You won't see me when you're in exile. What is the book of Esther? God's people are in, in exile. Who don't we see? This is your one chance of talking in the sermon, okay? This is it. This is the only one I gave you, all right? God, that's who they don't see. You've got to be ready for those, okay? God doesn't make an appearance. Why? Because this is an exilic people and God's face is hidden from them. And yet, who is the great character in this story? It's God. And because God is faithful to his promise, he delivers his people, even though his people seem pretty comfortable in exile. 
What does it take? It takes a few compromised people acting with a little bit of courage, actually a lot of courage. What does that mean for us? You know, I, I think as believers, we want to feel like I'm the Daniel in this culture, right? <laughs> I'm the one who, who stands athwart culture, and I will follow God no matter what, and I'll never compromise and all these things. But I think a more accurate portrayal of God's people is Esther. We're in exile, and a lot of us are pretty comfortable in exile. We're not that conflicted about different issues with loyalty to God or loyalty to the world, and yet God is faithful to his promises and will still use us even if we feel pretty compromised in our walk with God. And God is still working, even if it seems like the church has lost its mind. That's why this is a great book to study, isn't it? And ultimately, it's a book that points us back to the cross. Why? Because when God seemed most absent, what was God doing? He's redeeming the world. That seems foolish, doesn't it? It does. That's why Paul calls it foolishness. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For, and this is really the book of Esther, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than man. God's Plans confound our expectations. They seem foolish from a worldly standpoint, but this is the brilliance of God, is to use the foolish things and the weak things. Right? That's the cross. Satan's plan was to kill the Son of God, and that plan went right back on him. Life came through death. Victory through defeat. Gaining through losing. The ultimate justice through the greatest injustice. That's the cross. When God seems most absent, He's powerfully present, accomplishing the greatest good. And ultimately, the gallows that were for us, Christ was hanged on those gallows. He was put up on the cross so that we could walk free and receive honor. Do you see how Esther is really the story of the whole Bible? That's why we're studying it, and it points us back to Jesus, who is the ultimate confounder of our expectations in the way that he works. Let's pray. So, Father, thank you for, for the parts of the Bible, even the ones that seem a little weird or, or hard to grasp, uh, Lord, because they teach us something about how you work. And, Lord, I pray that as we, we study this, God, we would not be dismayed by the evil of the world or overwhelmed by our powerlessness, Lord, or hopeless because we feel compromised, Lord, but we would see that your redemptive power trumps everything. And Jesus, you've proven that through your death, you've given us life. Lord, teach us to have a deeper confidence in you for your sake.